Welcome to the show, folks. This is session 45 of our synchronized study of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I misspoke at the end of our last session. I told you we'd be covering Luke chapter 16 this week. I meant Luke 15. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus attended a dinner hosted by religious leaders who only invited him to set him up. It was the Sabbath day again, and they had placed a guy there who needed healing. Jesus knew their thoughts and was well aware of their intentions, and he also noticed that uh, other than this sick fellow, the only people there who had been invited were the wealthy and influential members of the community. He also noticed that people tried to nonchalantly grab the highest seats of honor before the dinner started. Well, Jesus looked over at the sick fellow and asked, Is it lawful to heal a man on the Sabbath day? None of the religious leaders said anything which diffused the trap, so Jesus healed the man and said, basically, of course it's lawful. Who wouldn't rescue their son or even their donkey if it had fallen into a pit on the Sabbath day? Come on. And by the way, don't rush to take the most honorable seats at a supper because somebody more honorable than you might be there and the host will embarrass you when he has to ask you to move. So take the lower seat first to avoid embarrassment, and if the host asks you to move up, then you'll be honored in front of everybody instead of being embarrassed. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but everyone who humbles himself will be honored. And when you religious leaders host a feast, don't just invite those who will later do something for you in return. Invite the poor, the lame, the blind, those who aren't able to do anything for you in return. Then you'll be repaid at the judgment seat of Christ at the resurrection. Jesus said all of this, and then someone who was there said, Man, blessed is he who eats bread in the kingdom of God. Jesus said, You know, it's interesting you saying that. A certain man gave a great supper and invited many and sent his servant out to give the invitation, saying, Everything's ready. All you have to do is show up. But everyone gave hurtful and flimsy excuses. They wouldn't even show up. So the man told his servant, well, go out and invite people from the streets, the alleyways, the poor, the blind, the maimed, the lamed. And the servant said, I have, and there's still room for more. So the man said, well, then go out into the highways and compel them, urge them, convince them so that my house may be filled. For not one of those who were invited and refused my invitation will ever eat my supper. Jesus said all of this in Luke chapter 14. And it's known as the parable of the Great Supper, and we talked about how this parable illustrates Jesus' invitation to the people of the world. He made everything ready at the cross. He sends out the Holy Spirit to everyone everywhere to invite them, compels them, urges them to accept that invitation. And that's all anyone has to do to be saved. Just accept the invitation. But then after this parable, Jesus gave stern warnings about the cost of following him. Not the cost of salvation, but the cost of going beyond that and becoming a disciple of Christ. The word disciple itself comes from the word discipline. It's not just believing and being saved. It's going further than that and seeing just how far this new relationship can go. Paul had that same curiosity. He said, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to me. It's actually infused inside of me by the Holy Spirit. I want to know what that means. How do I tap into that? I want to experience the maximum potential of God's resurrection power in me. But part of that experience involves suffering and persecution, which most Christians forget. We want the resurrection power without the crucifixion. 
And Jesus had many followers with that same kind of misconception. So Jesus splashed a little water in our face to set the record straight. Jesus had brought people back from the dead and would be resurrected himself, but not until after carrying a Roman cross. So he said, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, this isn't a command. It's simply a result of what happens when you do follow him. If you aren't willing to carry your own cross, if you have your own red line in the sand, if you have limits, then it's not possible to follow Jesus because Satan will go straight to that line and cross it, whatever it is. If you're serious about following Jesus, that gets Satan's attention. And then he'll use circumstances and people to make the Christian life uncomfortable. Now, God's not the one who does that. Sometimes we get a little mad at God, but it's not God who makes the Christian life uncomfortable. It's Satan who does that. The Christian life is freedom, folks. The Christian life is liberty. The Christian life is like being given new eyes and new ears to see and hear things, everything, like you've never seen and heard them before. The level of discernment is increased. But everyone else who's still using natural eyes and natural ears are ready-made tools for Satan to use, to persecute you, to harass you, which is why Jesus also said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also. He cannot be my disciple. And once again, Jesus is not making this a command. He's not commanding us to hate our family and friends. He's just warning us that Satan will often force us into a position of having to decide between what God wants and what our family and friends want. It's interesting. God never puts us in a position where we have to choose him over them. It's always they who eventually put us in that position. And don't think it won't happen just because they're Christians too. Remember when Peter told Jesus right after confessing that he was the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, in that very same conversation, he rebuked Jesus for saying he was going to be killed. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You are in my way. You're focusing on this from man's perspective and not God's perspective. Remember that? When you're actively pursuing God's will, you're going to be opposed. When you're not actively pursuing God's will, Satan pretty much leaves us alone. But when you make any effort to follow Jesus and stand up for Jesus, Satan will immediately put you on the witness stand in some situation or circumstance and force you into deciding whether or not you're going to stand for Jesus or do what's more comfortable. So Jesus warns us. Be ready for this kind of thing. Count the cost of what you're getting into. Not to discourage you in any way, just don't be misled about what you're getting into. Jesus compared following him without first counting the cost to building a tower and running out of money and materials before the job is finished. He also compared it to engaging in a military battle against an adversary who has twice as many troops as you do. Now, isn't that scary? And folks, that's exactly what following Jesus is. He's on the front line. So if you're following him, you're following him into battle. And it's a spiritual battle, not a physical one. It's amazing how many Christians just float through the Christian life not knowing anything about their enemy, who employs legions of fallen angels who wake up every single morning doing target practice on a dartboard with your face on it. And while you are sleeping or binge watching your favorite TV show or playing video games or playing church, 
They're carefully studying intelligence reports on what makes you tick, what scares you, what excites you, what you long for, what you love, what scars you have from your past, who's hurt you, how did they hurt you, what are your dreams, what are your goals, what are your fears. And folks, we just sit around calling ourselves disciples of Jesus because we read a few Bible verses every morning. A lot of us won't even do that. And we're sitting ducks for a massive defeat. And when we realize we're sitting ducks, we wind up losing heart and giving the enemy what he wants to keep the peace. And that's why Jesus said, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. None of us want to have to forsake all that we have, folks. This isn't a call to give everything away and become a nomad excluded from everybody you've ever known. Doesn't mean you have to have doom and gloom attitudes all the time. No more fun, no more happiness, no more entertainment. That's not what this means. It's just a warning of the possible cost of what you're getting into. It's a reality check about what's required to get through this with victory. And I'd hate to give anybody a guilt trip out there. I'm certainly no one to talk about this. But a lot of us won't even give up our TV time. Or even a fraction of our TV time. And we make excuses for it. There's nothing wrong with this. I deserve this. This is how I unwind. Well, Jesus is talking about carrying your own cross, forsaking all else and others. And we won't even give him one hour to pray. We wonder why there's no resurrection power in our lives. We keep wondering why Satan's winning. And this is why. Jesus finished his point by reminding everybody where to be salt of the earth. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, it isn't good for anything. And that concludes our review of Luke chapter 14, what we covered last week. Spent a little extra time in that because I, a few things that I didn't make clear last week, I wanted to get in the review here. But this week we're going to cover Luke chapter 15, where Jesus gives three very well-known parables. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son, also known as the story of the prodigal son. And while it's fun to search for something deep in all three of these parables, try to plug in all kinds of symbolic meanings to get doctrine and theology, a lot of times we can miss out on what's right in our face, trying to find something deep. So let's just look at this and see what the main point is before we start doing all kinds of digging. Starting in Luke chapter 15, verse 1, says, then all of the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to Jesus to hear him. That's verse one. That's, that's, <laughs> there's a group of people that Luke gives the title, the sinners. What on earth were these people up to that warranted that label? Well, Josh, that just means they were lost. No, not when you read the reaction this got from the Pharisees in verse two. It says the Pharisees and scribes complained. They murmured, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Don't be disillusioned about what we're talking about here. These were not just people who didn't go to synagogue. These are people whom, by today's standards, you might classify them as members of the mafia, prostitutes, assassins, professional thieves, drug dealers. Use your imagination. Go on down the list. Luke called them the sinners. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you, 
having a hundred sheep. If he loses one of them, does not he leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. This is the parable of the lost sheep, and Jesus said something very similar to this in Matthew chapter 18, verses 12 to 14, if you want to compare. It's not the same conversation, but it is similar. But this is the first of three parables that are known as the lost and found parables, and what is the main point before we start digging deeper? What's the main point here? Jesus is saying, the reason why I'm receiving these sinners and eating with them is for the same reason why a man goes after a lost sheep and carries it on his shoulders, rejoicing for having found it. It's that simple. Moving on to verse 8, Jesus says, What woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And folks, this is over something more than just a lost coin. When ten silver coins were brought together in their culture, that was equivalent to what today we would call an engagement ring. That's why it's a woman. Jesus said, what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together rejoicing saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And folks, this gives me goosebumps when I think about what goes on in heaven between God, the angels, and loved ones who are already there. How much of what goes on down here are they allowed to see? We don't know. But we get a glimpse here in this passage that the news of some things makes its way into the collective knowledge of heaven's citizens. I almost imagine it like the roars in a massive football stadium after a touchdown. When someone who is hell-bound accepts the invitation to allow Jesus to pay for their sins, there is an eruption of rejoicing in heaven. Now from these first two parables, we get two examples of how God sees us when we're lost. The first parable compared the lost to a lost sheep, because sheep, out of a natural curiosity, wanders away and gets lost. It happens. It's not being rebellious. It's just curious. It's easily distracted. And that's how a lot of people get locked into sin. Actually, that's the way all people get locked into sin. That's what caused the first sin, overwhelming curiosity. Sheep also have a tendency to follow other sheep, even if it means getting lost itself. Well, people are sheep too. Eve sinned out of curiosity. Adam sinned because Eve sinned. And because of Adam, we're all born with a sin nature. The second parable goes even further by comparing the lost to a lost coin, which isn't even conscious of its condition. And it's not lost because of anything it did. Its condition was the result of circumstances beyond its control. It had no control. It wasn't the coin's fault that it was lost. It's not even aware that it is lost. Well, all of us are born in sin. That's not our fault. Most people aren't even aware that there's a problem. 
especially these days since most people aren't brought up in Christian homes and sometimes even those that are kind of makes things worse depending on the Christian example they're getting. Something else about these first two parables, they also give us two examples of how God responds to our condition. He's frantic about finding us. He's obsessed and emotionally wrought over it, resulting in pursuing us with the same passion, the same emotional zeal that the man had who went out to find his lost sheep, wearing himself out, going everywhere, anxiously longing to pick it up and place it on his shoulders, carrying him home the rest of the way. God behaves like the woman who lost the coin, who took a lamp and lit up every area of darkness, sweeping, overturning, every nook and cranny, searching the entire house until she found it. Notice in both of these parables, the one doing the searching doesn't stop searching until that which was lost is found. Well, those are the first two parables. The lost soul in this third parable that we're about to read isn't lost because of circumstances that were beyond his control. He isn't lost because of natural curiosity. He's not lost because of wandering off. He's lost because of willful rebellion. So this parable reads a little differently than the first two parables, but Jesus is still using it to answer the question posed to him by the religious leaders. Why do you receive sinners and eat with them? Verse 11. Jesus said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me, my portion of the estate. What he's asking for is his inheritance. And the last I checked, you don't receive your inheritance from a father until the father has died. We sort of miss this in the English, but what he's saying is, I want to live as though you were dead. Give me my half of the estate that's owed to me. I want to get out of here. No gratitude, no mercy, just a sense of entitlement. What still belongs to his father, he believes is owed to him. He just doesn't want to wait for him to die to get it. Continuing with the parable, Jesus said that the father divided the estate between his two sons. And not many days after that, the younger son gathered up all that he had and journeyed into a distant country, and there he wasted his fortune in reckless, loose, unrestrained living. The King James uses the word riotous, and it's from all of that description that we get the word prodigal. It's nowhere in our English, but the word prodigal just means lavish. Verse 14, when he had spent all that he had, a mighty famine came upon the country he was in, and he began to fall behind and be in great want. So he went and forced himself, actually glued himself upon one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed hogs. And he was so hungry that he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods and the husks that the swine were eating. But no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread, and they have enough to spare, while I perish with hunger? I will arise and go back to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck 
and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf here. Kill it. Let us eat and be merry, for this is my son who was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. And they began to be merry. So that's why Jesus receives sinners and eats with them, guys. But this third parable shows us how the lost get found when the lost are rebellious, people who don't want anything to do with God. If you'll notice, the father's attitude in the parable, he doesn't argue with his son when he's rebelling. And once he's gone, the father doesn't run after him. And while he's lost to the father, he doesn't go out and search for him like he did in the first two parables. Because unlike the lost in the first two parables, this guy wants to be lost. He doesn't want to be found. So what's the father to do other than to watch and wait? As soon as the son came to his senses and gained humility, he decided to go back, not just because he was hungry. Being hungry is what brought him to his senses. But he remembered his father's love. He also had enough repentance to realize he had no business returning as a son. He no longer had that sense of entitlement. He had the humility to go back and be humble. But notice the father's attitude the moment his son turns around to go home. He doesn't sit and wait for him to come back. As soon as he sees him, he runs out to get him. He doesn't wait for him to come all the way to the house. He doesn't wait for the apology. He doesn't give him a list of demands, doesn't give him a scolding. What he wanted from his son, he got as soon as he saw him. The same is true with the unsaved who are rebellious. Just as they replace that rebellion with humility, it doesn't take long. God meets them right where they are, throws them down with hugs and kisses, immediately replaces their shame with honor. Jesus paid it all. When we go to him, a robe of his righteousness is placed on our shoulders. Our sins are covered and forgotten. Now, if Jesus wanted to, he could end the parable right there because he's made his point. But this third parable isn't over. Check this out, verse 25. Now, his older son, the father's older son, was in the field. And as he came home and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked, What's going on? What do, what do these things mean? And the servant said to him, Your brother has come home, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But the older brother was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, These many years I have been serving you. I have never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your estate with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him? And the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, because your brother was dead. But now he's alive again. He was lost, but now he's been found. And that's how the parable ends. The older brother in this parable represents the Pharisees. 
the religious leaders, who rather than being excited and happy to see sinners repent, they're upset that Jesus would give them the time of day. Both sons in this third parable were lost. One of them rebelled and left. The other one stayed behind. But neither one of them knew the love of their father. Neither one of them, except for the one who came back with humility. Then he got to experience the love of the father. Now there happens to be another application to all three of these parables. It's pretty interesting and provocative. And because of the theology that this additional application endorses, it's very tempting to entertain it. But to be honest with you folks, I'm not sure if it really applies when you put it in context of the original question which Jesus was addressing. But I'll throw it out there anyway, just so you'll be aware of it and you can come to your own conclusion. While all three of these parables are obviously centered around God's love and God's pursuit of the lost, an argument could be made that the lost in these parables were already saved at the beginning of each parable. The sheep that was lost in the first parable was already owned by the man who went out to find it. He was already a sheep of the flock. It wasn't a stranger's sheep. It was a sheep that already belonged to the man, which is why he was personally invested in finding it. The coin that was lost wasn't a coin that was randomly found. It wasn't just any coin. It was given to the woman along with the other nine coins before it was lost. The prodigal son, despite his behavior, despite his rebellion, he was the son of his father at the beginning of the parable and all throughout the parable. He may have squandered his inheritance, but he never lost his sonship. So what do you do with all this? It's suggested by some commentators who love to dig deep and find surprises that these individual parables could also be applied to people who were already saved but lose their way temporarily for whatever reason. So this additional application is used to endorse the doctrine of eternal security. But I think if you go down that road, then it sort of defeats the whole purpose of Jesus using these parables to address what the Pharisees were upset about, the fact that Jesus was receiving sinners and eating with them. Although even in that case, it still might work. I don't know. I, 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 you know, I have used this application a little bit when addressing the difference between our citizenship in heaven and our inheritance. Those are two separate things, and there's plenty of doctrine about that throughout the whole New Testament. We can't lose our salvation, but apparently we could lose our rewards, depending upon how we invest in the coming kingdom after we got saved. So with that, I've often looked at the parable of the prodigal son in connection with that, because he was a son of his father at the beginning of the parable, and during his period of disobedience, he squandered away his inheritance. And even though his father received him back after his humble repentance, there's no indication that he got his inheritance back. That was gone. But all of this might be taking these parables too far. These are not kingdom parables where Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven can be likened unto so and so. The kingdom parables are endless with symbolism and meaning both apparent and hidden. They're even prophetical. So you could study the kingdom parables forever and still not have everything uncovered. But these parables here, 
I don't know. I don't think they're meant to be decoded like that. I've read many commentators try to do that and draw all kinds of doctrine and theology with all of these parables. But if you just read it for what it says, they're just designed to respond to what the religious leaders were murmuring about. Why is Jesus receiving and eating with sinners? Well, why does a shepherd leave 99 sheep to find one? Why does a woman search for a lost coin even though she still has nine? Why does a father get excited about the return of a rebellious son even though he still had an older son? Those are called rhetorical questions. The answer is obvious. He's saying, I'm with these sinners because they were lost, now they're found. This is not a bad thing, it's a good thing. It's that simple. And while a culture of religious perfection might look good on the outside, it can blind you to the fact that you're just as lost as the sinners are. You're a sinner too, because you've shown no repentance, because you don't think you have anything to repent of. You're perfect. That's where we're going to leave it for this week, folks. Next week, we will cover Luke chapter 16. Until then, we're out of here. Take care.